Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we are gathered on this eve to focus on your Son's death in our place, we ask you to work in us the joy that we will never experience his sorrow and pain, as he suffered this to spare us from what our sins deserve. Help us to perceive the profound meaning of Jesus' suffering and death. Amen. Throughout this Lent series, we have preached on Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13 through 53, verse 12, which we haven't arrived at yet, and we've asked the question, why must the servant of the Lord suffer? Now, in our very first sermon, we saw that while he hides his godhood, so he endures a lot of things just by doing that, that otherwise he wouldn't have had to, but he hides his godhood, but that doesn't mean he's clueless. It's all part of his plan. He had the knowledge to win your salvation, and in, as he's ascended and rules in heaven now, he has the knowledge to keep you in your salvation. In our second sermon, we saw that he suffers inhumane treatment to lift you up and make you a child of God. In our third sermon, we saw that he had no worldly glory to draw us to him. It wasn't that he was ugly, but he was not especially handsome. He was not in a prestigious position, such as a worldly king. And so he suffers the rejection of God that is natural to our sinful nature. And that suffering is so that it has to be a miracle that draws us to him. And that miracle is your God-given faith. In our fourth sermon, we saw that he took upon himself the sickness that causes us so much grief, giving us the healing and peace that we need with his wounds. So this is the biggest sickness he's healed us from is the sickness of sin itself, which causes so much grief in all of our other sicknesses. In the fifth sermon, we saw that since we are sheep that persist in wandering away from the flock, he became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In our sixth sermon, our previous sermon, we saw that because of mankind's oppression and injustice towards each other, he used oppression and injustice to place himself upon the cross to pay for our oppression and injustice and our rebellions against God and God's just commands. And so we arrive at our Good Friday sermon text for this year, and that is recorded in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. They would have assigned him a grave with the wicked, but he was given a grave with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence and no deceit was in his mouth. And so we continue our theme asking the question, why must the servant of the Lord suffer? And literally, the Hebrew language when translated into English tells us, and his grave is given, and hence that would be assigned. So we'll say, and his grave is assigned with the wicked. Is this befitting of God? Why must he suffer having his grave assigned with the wicked? Well, first of all, we have to look at what even brings him up to the point of his death. And in Luke 23, verses 32 through 33, we're told two other men who were criminals were led away with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. He is treated as a criminal, a criminal who has done such a harsh crime that society is better off with him dead, a criminal who's done such a harsh crime that they wanted to literally make a billboard of his death to say this will not be tolerated. And so they nail him to a cross, which is one of the cruelest means to torture a person to death invented by human beings. Our electric chair or lethal injection are by far way more humane means of executing a person than the cross. 
And what are the charges that he deserves such a criminal punishment that the world needs to know this will not be tolerated? Matthew 27 verse 37 tells us, Above his head they posted the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. There's no crime in that. This is purely Pilate's cowardice, bowing down to the will of the Sanhedrin, but both the Jews and the Gentiles are involved in this, so he suffers as a criminal leading up to the point of his death. Now, let's take a look at part of the traditional gospel history for Good Friday as we look at his death. John chapter 19, verses 30 through 35. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses over the Sabbath, because that Sabbath was a particularly important day. They asked Pilate to have the men's legs broken and the bodies taken away. We're going to stop right there for a moment. Usually, a combination of factors gave way when they were crucified that led to their dying, including dehydration. But as their arms were nailed to that cross, it began to be more and more difficult to breathe. And so they had to pump their legs towards the end of the first day of being crucified, kind of like pumping a bellows to get oxygen. And by pumping their legs, their diaphragm would be able to keep moving air in and out of their lungs. So they would break the legs and then they would suffocate. So our text continues. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man who was crucified with Jesus and then those of the other man. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Immediately blood and water came out. The one who saw it has testified and his testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. Now again, here it appears that he's been tortured to death. But you'll notice he gave up his life, and he dies before the other people crucified with him. Of course, they do not appear to have received the flogging that Jesus had received. But what we want to focus on here is he dies a criminal's death. This is what the world sees. He's treated as a criminal, and when they come to break his legs, instead of taking that effort, they just go ahead and stab him with the spear to make sure he's dead, as they're treating him as a criminal, dying a criminal's death. And once he's placed in the tomb, we'll get into that in a minute. Is it finished? Is it over? No. He's even treated as a criminal in the grave. Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66 tells us, On the next day, which was the day after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in the presence of Pilate and said, Sir, we remember what that deceiver said while he was still alive. After three days I will rise again. So give a command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples might steal his body and tell the people, He's risen from the dead, and this last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and posting a guard. Isn't that interesting? Even in his death, they got to treat him like he's some kind of a criminal. But let's look at our text today, spoken by Isaiah 700 years before Good Friday. And his grave is given, hence assigned, with the wicked. And we're told later in verse 9, Although he had done no violence, hence no violent criminal thing to justify such a violent death, And no deceit is in his mouth. Jesus is not a liar. 
Jesus never told one lie. That's important for us to understand because the minute you mix a little bit of untruth with the truth, it's no longer the truth. Truth is either 100% pure or you don't have it at all. Why? Why must he suffer like this? He suffers as a criminal, he dies a criminal's death, and he's treated as a criminal in the grave. All of this is to die the innocent in place of the guilty. Recall a few sermons back in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5, where we are told, Surely he was taking up our weaknesses, and he was carrying our sufferings. We thought it was because of God that he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, but it was because of our rebellion that he was pierced. He was crushed for the guilt our sins deserved. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He suffers a criminal's death because, although he has done nothing earthly wrong to justify that death, he is taking the place for you. And so God uses the murderous plans of others that he becomes treated as a criminal so that he can take your sins upon himself. He suffers not just physically, he's abandoned by God, so that God the Son, who as the God-man, death would be precious enough so that he can atone for your sins. An interesting aspect of Hebrew poetry is that oftentimes it crescendos to a center verse and then decrescendos from this. Now, it doesn't do this 100% of the time, but when it does do that, it's to emphasize that center verse. And the center verse of the suffering servant prophecy of Isaiah is Isaiah 53, verse 6, where we're told, We have all gone astray like sheep. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has charged all our guilt to him. Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? He suffers to atone for every last one of your sins and every last one of my sins and every last one of the world's sins. He takes the punishment we deserve. He does this voluntarily, dying a criminal's death because he's charged as if he himself is guilty for our sins so that you and I can live. It's God's great exchange. When God looks at Christ, he sees your sins have been paid for in full. Christ took the punishment for you in your place and my place and the world's place. And when he looks at Christ, he sees that. But when he looks at you, he sees Christ's innocence. So when God looks at Christ, he sees your sins paid in full when God looks at you, he sees Christ's innocence. And so there's no need for anyone to suffer hell. If they find themselves there, it's their own fault. Christ took the punishment for the world, and they have not done the only thing he asks, that's to believe. They have rejected that. Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? To die the innocent in place of the guilty. He suffers as a criminal. He dies a criminal's death. He's treated as a criminal in the grave. Yet it's all part of God's great exchange so that Christ the innocent dies in place of you and I and the world, the guilty of sin. Now, let's take a look again at verse 9, my translation. And his grave is assigned with the wicked, yet with the rich in the state of his death, although he had done no violence and no deceit is in his mouth. How do you go from being crucified as a criminal, even having a guard posted around your grave to guard you, and yet still turn out to have the grave with the rich. 
Well, John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42 spells that out for us. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, and as a side note here, both the Gospels of Mark and Luke make it clear that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He would not have gone along with the uh, plot to murder Jesus. So after this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him remove Jesus' body. When Pilate gave him permission, he came and took Jesus' body. Nicodemus, who had earlier come to Jesus at night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 72 pounds. So Nicodemus is also a member of the Sanhedrin. And recall, arguably there are two very important conversations in salvation history. When Adam and Eve fall into sin and God promises that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, and Jesus' conversation that night uh, or with Nicodemus that is recorded in John chapter 3, where the verse that everybody remembers is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So, as John 19, verses 38 through 42 continue, Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus at night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 72 pounds. They took Jesus' body and bound it with linen strips along with spices in accord with the Jewish burial customs. There was a garden at the place where Jesus was crucified, and in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. So they laid Jesus there because it was the Jewish preparation day and the tomb was near. Now, Matthew 27, verses 59 through 60 tell us a little bit more about that tomb. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid it in his own new tomb, that he had cut in rock. He rolled a large stone over the tomb's entrance and left. So, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He had become a believer, and he had this tomb dug for himself. It had never been used. Why does Jesus get an unused tomb? It's part of the same reason why he comes riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a colt, the foal of a donkey, because it would not have been ridden. God gets only the best, and so often it happens that we want to give our junk for Jesus sometimes in our sinful nature, but when God is going to be glorified, when God is doing something important, he gets what's completely unused, and the tomb had been unused just as that colt had. Now, the amazing thing is, is when God gives us, he gives to us in abundance so that we can give back, and when we give back what God has already given to us, he has a way of blessing it. So Joseph of Arimathea will get his tomb back. Now, we've got to be careful because we don't want to turn in, into idolatry as people worship supposed slivers of the cross and things like this. But think about how just as Jesus sanctifies all graves because he went to the grave for us in our place, Joseph of Arimathea's grave would have a special blessing. The next time somebody used that grave, it would be Joseph, and he would be laid where our Lord was laid. But again, Joseph would get this gift back from the Lord. What a privilege and blessing. Now, at this point, Jesus is laid in a rich man's grave. He will descend into hell and have his triumph, his victory parade, and Jesus will be seen on Sunday having risen, showing that God has accepted the payment. All our sins are paid for. So why must the servant of the Lord suffer? To receive a grave befitting his glory. It's a godly glory. Right up to the point of his death, he's in his state of humiliation where he's not using all the powers of his deity and hiding it. But after this, the next time he's seen, he's going to apparate out of the grave. The angel rolls the stone away. 
and he'll walk through walls and everything else. People will clearly see this is God, and then he'll ascend to heaven. And so the suffering servant section began with Isaiah 52, verse 13, where it said, Pay very close attention. My servant has the knowledge to bring success. He continues being high. See, Jesus is true God. He's always had omniscience. He doesn't make full use of his godly powers, but he does use that wisdom to make sure that the plan he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit had made comes out. And as true God, he ends up in a rich man's tomb, a tomb that is fitting for the God-man, for his godly glory. And as we're going to celebrate the next time we gather to meet, we celebrate that tomb is empty, which means he has paid for your sins in full. As we learned on Palm Sunday, we glorify him when we trust that he did 100%, not 99.8, leaving us that 0.2% or any percent. He did 100% of the work of our salvation. Even because of his death, we may die, but we will rise as well. So why must the servant of the Lord suffer? To die the innocent in place of the guilty and to receive a grave befitting his glory. Amen. Now worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Amen.